Now, this is set up Sunday in a sense. We had a warm up last Sunday. If you were here, I'm not going to repeat the material from last week, though I'll reference part of it. But feel free to go on the Internet and get that lesson if you want to see some of what we discussed last week. Uh, The first couple of weeks, the class here is designed around the idea of getting some familiarity with the alphabet that will help us as we go further in the class. Right now, the class I am so excited to teach, it just is busting out of my seams, and I almost taught it today just to because I'm so excited, but it comes in week three. Then I only realized yesterday, that's Labor Day weekend, when half of you are gone. So here's the deal. Bruce will be here. Here's the deal. On Labor Day weekend, please bring somebody if you're in town. Please bring somebody. And, 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 because this is like, this is a good lesson on Labor Day weekend. It's almost a pity. I mean, I almost just decided, you know, but no, we're going to teach it. It's the one that's written. So bring a friend. So many of these Greek lessons you can come to even if you've missed some. It's not like Greek class where it builds on each other. So each one, I'm trying to make it where individually it makes sense, even though it'll make more sense if you've been to more of them. Now, with all of that said, let's begin. We're going to start with a vocabulary lesson this morning because Greek vocabulary will help us get some dexterity with the lesson. Now, when I was young, I'd graduated from high school, and the first year I went to college, I went to Texas Tech University. And when I was at Texas... Oh, I'm sorry, that's Oxford. A lot of times... A lot of times when you do Google Images for Texas Tech University, pictures of Oxford come up because people mislabel them. Anyway, my my apologies. I was, my dad picked me up from a class. I had been in Greek class. Uh, It was was, uh, first year Greek, classical Greek. And dad picked me up to give me a ride home. And when I got in the car, dad said to me, he didn't, I mean, he just picked me up from college. He didn't know what class I had, what I was coming from. Dad said, uh, so what class were you in just now? I said, dad, you picked me up from Greek class. And he said, huh, you know, that's the one, one I didn't get. And I said, what? He said, I know something in every language except Greek. And dad had been in the Navy and I mean, he was a, man who knew a little bit about everything, and, and I, I said, really? And I thought he might be bluffing me. I said, say something in Russian. He said, that's Greek to me. <laughs> now, <laughs> the Lanier house always go for the joke. Now, with all due respect, Dad did know some Greek, though he may not have realized it. You know Greek, even though you don't realize it. Now, you may be a little fuzzy on some of the letters, but if you look at that word up there, the first letter that I've put in red is, if you remember from math, that's pi, right? It's the Greek P sound. The second red letter that looks like a a, a piece of string that's just been draped and looped around a couple of times is actually a Z. And a cursive Z is still written a little bit like that with some people. And then the last letter that's in red looks like an, a, a W is the long O. That's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the alpha, the first letter, and the omega. That's the omega. That's O. All right? So now when you look at that, can you sound that word out? Baptizo. Baptize is Greek. Next word. The second letter in this word that looks like an O wearing a belt is actually TH. It's the Greek word theta. And then you'll see the S at the end that looks almost like a C with a tail on it. It's like an S that's got droopsy. Okay? So now knowing that that is a TH... And an S at the end, sound it out. 
that's an atheist. That's someone who does not believe or know of God. Theos is God. In Greek, when you put a in front of it, it means no, not. All right? Next word. You can see the pie. I didn't make it red because you know the pie already. And then in that first red letter is the way they wrote an S when the S was in the middle of the word. So that's A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. Apostle comes from that word. Apostello in the Greek means I send. And the apostles Jesus sent. All right, look at this one. That first word, first letter that I've, I've made red is a U, which in English we can use as a U or a Y. The Greek didn't have a Y. All right, so that's a, when you put it into English, it can be a Y, not just a U. And you'll notice above it, it's got a comma that looks like it's backwards. Whenever that comma is backwards over the first letter, it makes an H sound. It's like an open mouth. Ha! Okay, they didn't have a letter H. So they'd have this open mouth. Ha! So you've got H with a U or a Y sound, P, O, and then a K. Their K was also a C. They didn't have a C. So K is just a hard C sound. And then that next red letter that looks like a P, that's their letter R. And I've never figured out how we got our R from that P. But that's an R. It's not a P. So you've got H, U, P, O, C, R, I, T, and then that N with a tail, that's their long E. That's the Ada. Anybody care to guess what word? That's a hypocrite. And if you acted like you knew it, even though you didn't, you can wear it. Last one, practicing the alphabet. That third letter in, it's the first one I've done red. You've got E, U, and you'll notice the comma is the right direction. So you don't make a ha sound on this one. You just leave it. E, U is just U is the way you'd pronounce it. And then that first letter is, looks like an X, but it's C-H. It's the letter key or chi. It's the first letter in the word Christ. So it has a C-H sound, like Christ. All right, A, and then that's the R-I-S-T-O-S. Yes, Miss Carolyn, Eucharist. You got it. Bingo. All right, so you see, Dad may not have realized it, but he did know some Greek, and so do you. So many of our words come from the Greek. Now, you might think then that translation's an easy thing. All you got to do is get these Greek words and turn them into English words. But it does not happen that way. It's actually very, very difficult to do. If you want to translate Greek, ancient Greek, into modern English, you've got a number of different problems. And so as we look at those problems, the first one is pretty simple. What do the words mean? If I could tell you that I have a seal, S. E-A-L. Some of you are going to wonder what it is. Might it be a seal, the animal? Might it be a seal of approval? Might it be a seal upon my heart? Might it be a seal that goes on a legal document? Our word seal can mean lots of different things. And words mean different things in different times. So, if I've got uh, 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 an answer, is it just going to be give me the dictionary? Can't I figure out what the Greek means just by looking at it in a dictionary? No. No. Because dictionaries won't give a meaning. In fact, I'm not sure it's even fair to talk about 
the meaning of a Greek word. The Greek word is just a sound that was used in different contexts to convey different ideas. And these dictionaries get written by somebody, but it's not by Paul to tell you what Paul meant when Paul used the word hypocrite. And so we scholars um, toil with this, and, and it's hard to mirror this stuff up. But the dictionary's not the answer in itself. It's a lot more complicated than that. Let me give you an example of why, just from English. I pulled up an email here. Let's say I'm going to type an email to Brent Johnson. And I want to talk to him about his toga. And I decide I'm going to CC David Fleming. Now, CC. I asked my daughters this morning, what does that mean? They said, well, that means you're going to, you're going to, they get a copy of this, right? I said, yeah, but CC, how does that mean they get a copy of this? I don't know. I think that's what it means though, doesn't it? Then Rebecca said, dad, uh, our generation doesn't really use email that much. We have Instagram and da, 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 tweets, blah, 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 Snapchat. I said, okay, so you're too young for email. This really makes dad the fossil. But think about it for a moment. Those of you who are my age know, Helen, you know what CC means. It means carbon copy. I told that to one of my daughters. She said, what's that? I said, well, there used to be a time where in a typewriter, what's that? Okay, let's go back another step. You would take a sheet of paper you were going to type on, and you would put behind it a carbon sheet of paper, and then you would put another sheet of paper. So when that key hit the paper, it would push through the carbon, and the carbon would leave a print of the key on the second sheet of paper. She said, well, why didn't y'all just make a copy of it? (laughs) So then when a secretary would do that in the lower left-hand corner, she would type, or he would type. Most secretaries back then were she. Sorry, I'm not trying to be sexist. This is history. So would type C-C. For carbon copy. So you'd know who a carbon copy went to. That gets put on email as email comes along. But it's no more a CC than the man in the moon. This thing hadn't seen carbon paper in its life. I don't understand why it doesn't just say C for copy. Or EC for electric copy. Or email copy. I don't understand it, but I didn't make this program up and I didn't make these rules up. They're sorry rules, but I didn't do it. Or, how about this one? I had a conference call the other day. And you know what they did before the conference call? They sent me the dial-in number. Well, I can't dial in. My phone doesn't have a dial. I asked my kids about that one. What do you mean your phone didn't have a dial? I said, phones used to have dials. Really? Yeah, they were these round little things on the phone. You go, and you would have a number you dial. But you don't dial a number now, but it's still called a dial-in number. Well, that's kind of silly. Words change meaning as life goes on. And the Greek is no different. The Greek language the New Testament was written in was the Greek vernacular, the common speech of 150 to 100 A.D. And they used vocabulary differently then than they did three or four hundred years earlier. Than they did seven or eight hundred years earlier when Homer was writing. When you take Greek... You can take Homeric Greek and learn to read the Greek Homer wrote in. Or you can take Classical Greek and learn to read Aristotle and, and Plato and Herodotus. And, 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 or you can take Koine Greek, 
which is the Greek of the New Testament. And some of it's the same, but some of it's a little bit different. And so what we have to do is we have to try to figure out what scholars try to do is scholars try to figure out what did these words mean at the time they were written. And it was never so easy as, well, just Google it. Because they didn't have Google. Look in the Greek dictionary from the day it was written. They didn't have Greek dictionaries in the day it was written that we know of today. So what do you do? Well, one thing the scholars will do is they'll look at the Greek New Testament because the Greek New Testament will use a lot of the same words over and over. And so you can get the context that the word's used in and you can better understand the word. You can look at the Greek Old Testament. We've got a number of different copies of Greek Old Testaments that date from around that era. Some of them a couple of hundred years before. But it still gives you access into how the Greek vocabulary was being used. By then studying it in relation to some Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament vocabulary. You can read the Church Fathers which we were studying in church history in here, and get a feel for how the church fathers were seeing things and using vocabulary. And then you can look at other writings from that era. Some of them more formal writings, but some of them just basic papyri, scratch paper that we found from that era, and see how it was using vocabulary. And when you start doing that, you get a better idea of what the words mean and how they were used. And so what I'd like to do is look at that with you with uh, just an example here first. The manuscript on the right is from Codex, which means book, Sinaiticus. It's a copy of the, New, of the Bible, Greek Bible, that was found on Mount Sinai uh, by a guy named Constantine von Tischendorf in the 1800s. It's found at St. Catherine's Monastery. One of the oldest full copies of the Bible we've got. Missing a few pages, got a couple of extra books, but basically one of the oldest. And I've pulled out the section from John where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And in John 19, it says, when Jesus took the vinegar, he said, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Now, some of you are sitting there trying to figure out those Greek letters thinking, Lanier has cheated us. Some of those letters don't look like our letters. Fonts changed. Handwriting changed. The form of the letters changed. What I've given you is the standard form in most printed books. This manuscript was written in all capital letters, which for a phase of time, books were written in. And so you may not as readily be able to recognize those, but that's, um, that's what it is. So here, let me underline tetelestai. T-E-T-E-L, the Lamed, E. Now you're saying that's a C. I thought you said they don't have a C. They don't have a C. The S was written as a capital C. That's just the way it looks. So that's an S. T-A-I. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Now, here is the word. And what does it mean? It is finished. We know that because we've read our Bibles. Jesus hung on the cross. When he took the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Now, here's a good question for you. What's finished? Is life finished? Is this Jesus saying, my life's over. I'm dying. Does this mean my ministry is finished? Okay, I'm through with the ministry. I'm about to die. I've heard a number of, of, actually, I don't hear as many preachers say it. I've heard a few preachers. More I've read on the internet, internet preachers say. This means the debt is paid. And the reason they think that or, or, or suggest that is because we have found some ancient receipts where the debt was paid, and on the receipt it was marked, not stamped, but almost like a stamp, Tetelestai. 
Like the debt was paid in full. And that makes a nice point for Jesus. But I don't think that's necessarily directly what was being said here. Even though it's the theological truth behind what was happening. So if you wanted to go and you wanted to look for where is Tetelestai used within a religious context, you can find a number of different references. I've pulled out two of them. Diodorus Siculus was a writer in about uh, 45 B.C. And Diodorus Siculus wrote and used Tetelestai to reference an oracle has been fulfilled, a prophecy, if you will has been fulfilled. And so, tetelestai, it is finished. A prophecy has been fulfilled. Or how about this reference from Aelius Aristides? A divine command has been completed. Now, those are two very direct ancient references we have to that statement, tetelestai in a religious context. Jesus on the cross is proclaiming an oracle, a prophecy has been fulfilled. The prophecy has been fulfilled. He had told his apostles that what he was doing is what had been written about by the prophets. He had said in his prayer that was recorded in John... Lord, let this cup pass away from me, yet not what I will, but thou will be done. That divine command has been completed. The will of God has been done. Jesus was faithful to the point of death on the cross. And that's his proclamation. Now, you can get this not just from looking in the ancient scriptures, but when I mean ancient writings. But now when you look at those writings, look at what Jesus says in the context that it happened. So now we go back to, now we go to John. And Richard Vlock, who donated this Bible up here because he got tired of me looking for one. Thank you, Richard, for that. Um, and I assume you don't mind me writing in it. Thank you. Look at this passage now, thinking an oracle has been fulfilled. A divine command has been completed. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, by the way. Care to guess what word that is in the Greek? Uh Uh-huh, you're right there, same word. Said to fulfill... The scripture. An oracle has been fulfilled. That is a very typical way to use tetelestai. Here's a further one. This is another form of the same word. Tetelestai. Fulfill. Right here. From teleo of the Greek. So it's just, it's just another form of the same word. No, so Jesus, knowing that all was now... Tetelestai, finished, said to finish the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine or vinegar. It's the same word in the Greek. On a hyssop branch, they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus was obedient. He fulfilled the divine command. He ful- the prophecy that was written for ages found fulfillment. And his, min- and his life on earth was done. So that's one way that looking at what these Greek words mean beyond just looking in a dictionary is a real help to us with scripture. You with me? Okay, now let's have some fun with it. Uh, We just did that. Okay, um, so here's the issue. The Greek translators have to figure out first what do the words mean. But then once they figure out what the words mean, it's not an easy chore for them to turn it into a Bible for us. Because 
sometimes there's not a word-to-word translation. Sometimes that one Greek word means lots of different things in English. Last week I used as an example the Greek word logos, which is translated word. But we also get logic from it. We also get studying from it in the sense of ology, every ology, biology, zoology, anthropology. The ology comes from a logos, ho logos. So, so the, the, this word logos in the Greek, in English, sometimes it means word. Sometimes it means discourse, discussion. Sometimes it means logic. Sometimes it means thought, rationality. Sometimes it means argument. So the translators have to sit there and recognize that they get to pick, generally, one English word to go with that one Greek word. What are they going to pick? Sometimes theology gets messy. There's a Greek word, diabolos. It means slanderer. Someone who slanders. Sometimes in our Bible, the translators translate it slanderer. Paul says, don't be a slanderer. Sometimes they translate it devil. Same word. But theology tells the translator sometimes it's referencing the ultimate slanderer. As John calls him, the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. Satan himself. Same word though in the Greek. Sometimes it's cultural references that are lost. We talked about this last week. We'll get into those more later. Sometimes the Greek is actually a translation of the Hebrew. And so we're looking at a translation of another word. No, of a translation of a translation. And anybody who's ever cut a piece of wood will tell you, if you've got to cut ten pieces the same size, you don't cut one and then use, Larry can tell you this, don't use the piece you cut to to mark your second piece. And don't use that second piece you cut to mark your third piece. You mark it with one piece each time. Use that same piece each time. Or by the time you get to the end, you're not even going to be remotely close. So, translation of a translation of a conversation. Sometimes that causes some decision making. So, translators, you know, some people say, uh, um, in fact, we studied Islam for a couple of weeks last month or early this month, whenever it was. Time's fuzzy to old people, um, like me at least. When we, you know, the, the Muslim world is very convinced, by and large, that it's wrong to translate the Quran into another language. Because the Quran itself is written in its holy language, and any translation would not be adequate. And some people will go a step further and say, that's a problem with Christianity. How can you believe it? You have 104 English translations of the Bible. So it can't be right. And I disagree. Let me tell you why. We got 104 because it takes 104 to really try and divulge the breadth of the meaning of the original. Most Muslims who will tell you, no, you don't translate the Quran, can't read it and can't understand it. Because it's written in classical Arabic. And if they could, they wouldn't understand it the way it was originally written because we don't live in the classical Arabic times. The beauty of God's Word is not that it's a math problem that we can put on our chalkboard and digest and know pi to the 50th digit. And going deeper is not knowing pi to the 51st digit. The Word of God is something that's so vibrant and active and and is so intense And it's got so much flavor that you can chew on it one day and get an entirely different perspective than you will another day, depending upon the crisis you have in your life. And that's the beauty of God's Word. 
That's not a detriment. So we're going to look at those things, but today I want to talk about the issue of a one-to-one word translation, how hard it is sometimes to do that. Here's a sticky passage that we'll use to illustrate it. It comes from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And uh, let me pull that up in this handy-dandy ESV. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. I tried to pick a passage we all have some familiarity with. Even if you don't know it, you've probably heard it before, at least parts of it. Jesus says, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking, preaching. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you only greet, greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? And look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ouch. Ouch. Let's go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. I want to zoom in on that. You, therefore, must be perfect. Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, that passage is a sticky one. First of all, how many of you are there? Uh-uh. How many of you were there yesterday, just had a rough night? <laughs> How many of you have been perfect parents? You know, I got to tell you, in the stages of my life, I've gone through different understandings of this passage. When I was a young man, I thought there was a list of rules, some do's and don'ts. If you'd come to me in high school, I'd have told you the list of rules. In fact, Becky can remember us arguing about this in high school, basically because I was a rule follower and she wasn't. But (laughs) she danced. I mean, it's a list of rules. Basically, you do what your parents tell you to because they teach you the rules. The preacher reinforces the rules. It's a list of rules. So I'd say, be perfect as your father's perfect. I'm just going to follow the rules. I got this. Until I reached a point where I started reading the Bible a little more and I grew some and I began to understand That as Isaiah said, my best deeds are like polluted garments before the Lord. I began to understand that if selfishness is wrong, then anything I do with even a hint of selfishness is repulsive in terms of God and His purity. And I began to realize that this wasn't just a set of rules I could follow to be perfect. And then this passage started stinging instead of offering me solace. Because my self-righteousness itself was a sin. And so I started thinking, well, I got no shot. So I just looked at this passage as God and Jesus driving me to the cross. 
Jesus setting up this moral standard, this moral imperative that I was to be perfect just as God was perfect. And, of course I could never do that. Paul told me I could never do that. Paul explained to me, I'm a son of Adam. And I live as a sinner. And there's a law of sin and death. And even though Jesus has set me free from that, I still live in this corrupted body with a corrupted mind, with bad habits. My heart is not as pure as my heart should be. And so I would see this commandment from Jesus and I would think, that must mean, Lord, I need your righteousness. I need your perfection because I don't have it and I can't get it on my own. So I saw this passage at that point as Jesus trying to drive me to my knees to cry out for mercy to the Lord, which is a good thing to do. And we should all reach that point in life. Martin Luther said that's one of the functions of the law. Paul teaches that's one of the functions of the law to show us our sin, to drive us for mercy. But is that really what Jesus was doing here? You certainly don't get it in the flow. I mean, this isn't on the heels of him explaining that he was going to die for everybody's sin. So it was at this point that I decided it's time to look at the Greek text. It's time to go deeper. Excuse me, I didn't eat breakfast. Um, time to go deeper, my homage to uh, uh, our class. Okay, so I've pulled out, this is a codex, you can see this if you go to Washington, D.C. This is Codex Washingtonius or Washingtonianus or whatever it's called. But it's basically another Greek manuscript of the Gospels. This is of the four Gospels written around the end of the 300s, the early 400s A.D. is when this copy was made. So here is a Greek word that's translated perfect. It is written T-E-L-I-O-S. T, which is the Greek tau. E, the Greek epsilon. L, the Greek lambda. The Greek iota. Omicron, and that C is the final S when it's at the end of a word. You'll see as you look at that manuscript, they didn't put spaces between their words. Makes it a real pain in the neck to try to read. But we're going deeper. So teleos. Interestingly, by the way, every time it's used in that manuscript that I could find, and I tried to go through uh, that gospel, the four gospels there, every time it's, it's spelled differently than we spell it in our Greek New Testaments. Because even spelling wasn't set. Who decided spelling rules? Did you know if you go up north, they don't even have the word y'all in their dictionary. <laughs> Much less do they spell it right. I had someone spell it Y-A-W-L in a deposition transcript. Y'all... That's not it. It's Y apostrophe A-L-L. It's the contraction of you all. Y'all. Second person plural. (laughs) Turns out that issue, you know, we, we just live in this generation where we go to school and if we don't spell it right, we lose the spelling bee. I am not a good speller. I am very fond, by the way, people come up to me all the time and say, how do you spell mountain? And I'll tell them how I spell it. It's just not the way to spell it. When they write it down and say, well, this isn't right. I didn't say, how should one spell mountain? You ask me how I spell it. That's how I spell it. So this is a misspelling for this word. The real word is spelled teleos. Teleos. Teleos is translated perfect. By the way, my Greek geek effort to put a cartoon in your lesson came in right here. 
Dr. Geek, everything I see looks like a TV. Hmm, a TV. Sounds like teleos vision. You have perfect eyesight. Okay, I, I will. I'm not saying these cartoons, comic strips are going to take off, okay? I'm just throwing them in there for lack of humor. So, anyway, that's what teleos means. That's supposed to help you remember teleos, like teleos vision, perfect vision, translated perfect. Okay, I got news for you. Look at this for a moment. Let's go to the Elmo. Well, let's go back so that what I'm writing is on the Elmo. Teleos. IOS. Teleos. Perfect. Do you know this is an adjective? There is also a Greek verb that comes from the same root. Teleo. And if you want to put it in a certain form, you you repeat the first two letters. Tetelestai. It is finished. Comes from the same root. Because the idea of being perfect, we tend to think of, let's go back to the PowerPoint, we tend to think of it as a moral perfection. Someone who has no sin. Okay? But I had the perfect cantaloupe yesterday. It was just perfectly ripe. You know how when you get them and they're not perfectly ripe, they're too hard? And it's just like, or if they're too ripe, they're just mushy. I had the perfect cantaloupe. Now, I don't mean that cantaloupe was without any moral sin. I mean, it was finished. It was ripe. It was fulfilled as to what it needed to be. And that's the way this word is. This word in the Greek as an adjective, as a noun, as a verb, it means in an adjective form, the full measure. It means in the noun form, fulfillment, achievement. In the verb form, to carry out a task. It is finished. The oracle has been fulfilled. The commands of God have been achieved. It's been brought to fullness. That same word is here. So it's carrying this idea, not of a moral perfection, but perfect in the sense of mature. Now let me give you a couple of scriptures here. I don't know how many we'll have time to go through because I'm I'm bogged down a little bit time-wise. But just, I'm going to show you the exact same word in your New Testament so that you get a feel for how it is used. And you've got all of these in your handouts. So you can go back there. First, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.6. 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says the following. Yet among the mature, we do impart ri- wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age. Or of the rulers. Paul's saying among those who, who, who are mature. That's the exact same word translated perfect. It's not a moral perfection. Look at Ephesians 4.11 where Paul uses the word there. In Ephesians 4.11 through 13, it gives you a really good feel for this. Paul says that God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. And that, that, it's the same word. It's teleos. Perfect, not in the sense of no more, you know, Paul's not saying here until we all get sin free. Heaven forbid Paul would say that. That's just anti-Paul. How about Philippians 3.15? Here's another place it's used. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Colossians 1.28. Page after page of the Bible. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, perfect in Christ. So this idea of, 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 of uh, if we go back to the PowerPoint, this idea is one of, of maturity that, that is being talked about here. It's even used the same way and I'll use this in a point for home, so I won't pause now. First Chronicles, in the way the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Greek word teleos means the same thing. It means a perfection, a wholeness, a completion, a maturity. If we look at some of the other writings of the time, we look at the writings of Philo, who was a Jewish writer in Alexandria, Egypt, contemporary, a little bit earlier than Paul, but contemporary with Paul. At least the life of Paul, we should say. And you look at Philo and the way he uses it. And Philo says there's three stages to a human being, hopefully. The first stage is a beginner. The second stage is someone who's making progress. And the third stage is someone who's teleos, who's, got, who's grown up, who's matured, who's, who's acting their age. Now, if we think of it that way, let's look at the points for home. The first one is that very passage. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When when I saw this as a list of do's and don'ts, I compromised the beauty and integrity and majesty of a holy God and built up wrongly the righteousness of a lowly boy. When I grew into the stage of realizing I could not reach God's moral perfection, I need His mercy. Theologically, that's true. But it allowed me to write off that passage. That passage is not really a challenge for the way I live. That's a challenge for me to seek God's mercy. Now when we look at it with an understanding of the Greek word, the passage that Jesus gave us means something to me. It's Jesus telling me to grow up. It's Jesus telling me to, as Pastor David said this morning, to act like Christ, to act like God. Not just in my deeds, but in my mind, in my heart. This is Jesus saying, you know, you need to do this. This is important. And now all of a sudden, holiness starts taking on a different issue. I'm not doing it to get saved. I'm doing it because Jesus told me it was important to do. He said, you do this. Jesus isn't setting out salvation equipment. He's saying, look, don't just love your enemy. I mean, love your, 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 your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You need to grow up. You need to realize you take life and you live intelligently. You live decisively. You live making decisions on how you're going to be. And you make those decisions to be like God. I mean, anybody can make decisions to be ungodly. It's not hard. It comes naturally. You don't ever... How many of you were kids? Did someone have to teach you how to disobey? We've had five kids. There's not one of them. They're all wonderful young adults. But there's not a one of them where we had to teach them how to disobey. We had to teach them how to obey. And as adults, we can choose. Which leads to the next point for home. In the Greek translation of this Old Testament passage, look at where it uses teleos. In the Greek translation of this Old Testament passage, David says to his son Solomon, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, a teleos heart, a perfect heart, a mature heart, and with a willing mind. You make that decision to serve him with a mature, perfect heart, to be perfect as your father is perfect. And with a willing mind. And I am Lord, take my heart. Last point for home. James uses the word. 
Look at this passage in James. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Helios. Perfect effect. Mature effect. Ripe effect. It is finished effect. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be that finished effect. That you may be pure. That you may be perfect. That you may be ripe. That you may be fulfilling, fulfilled. That you may be achieved and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, this, this to me is, um, you know, life's throwing curveballs. Some of you have sent me texts and emails. And you're sitting there going, Lord, what do we do right now? Pray for me, Mark. Which, by the way, I always, always am honored that anybody would ask me to pray for them. And I do it. So please send me those emails and texts. But I'm telling you, those curveballs get thrown at you in this life. We need to know that God does not waste them. And that when we are steadfast in our faith, and even though it it takes years off our life, and it can gray our hair, it can lose our hair, it can change. Look, some of us, it turns us into blimps, and some of it, it turns us into rails. I tend to eat when I'm upset. Some people starve when they're upset. The point is, let's be faithful to the Lord, and let's trust Him not to waste any of this, Because he is setting about, and as all of this gets ripe, he's using it to ripen us. And that's our prayer. Lord, use life to mature me. May I bless you, please, in the name of Jesus. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and I do ask your blessings on us all. Father, to hear the words of Jesus like this, and to think about the the Son of God, you, God made flesh, living obedient to the point of death on a cross, proclaiming it was finished. And yet, Lord, seeking to ripen and mature us into your image. It's a blessing, Father. Thank you that these folks come this morning and get on the internet to to hear this word. I pray that you will let your word change your people from the inside out. Through Jesus, amen. Thank you.